How important are board policies? How do we avoid operational meddling on the board? And is our board leaving room to hear from the Holy Spirit? We'll consider these questions and more on this episode of the Excellence in Ministry podcast. Pursuing God-honoring responsible stewardship in governance, financial accountability, and fundraising. Welcome to the Excellence in Ministry podcast from ECFA. Hi, this is Michael Martin from ECFA. Thank you for joining us today as we discuss three key lessons for nonprofit boards. Hey, I am so thrilled today to have on the podcast our very own Dan Busby, president of ECFA, and our good friend, who feels like family, John Pearson, who is co-author with Dan on the new book, Lessons from the Nonprofit Boardroom. So John, let's jump right into the first topic here on the podcast, establishing and maintaining solid board policies. You tell a story in the book about a board that just wrapped up its first board policies manual. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that story? It's a fun story because I remember uh, being at this board retreat and the chair of the board policy manual task force was so proud of having uh, completed draft one. So with that work done, we then moved on to the question of CEO succession policies. And we asked the, the uh, question and, and painted this scenario, what would happen if your CEO were hit by a bus? And I said, we'd, we'd be sad, of course, for an appropriate number of days, but, but then we'd need to move on and you'd need to trust God for the next CEO. So the chair of the board policies manual jumped in and he said, so, so John, uh, would we need to have a metric for the number of days we should be sad if our CEO got hit by a bus? <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I said, you know, actually, you, you, you would not need to include that uh, in the board policies manual. But I affirm that we would be sad because their CEO is a wonderful person. So, uh, Dan, um, as you know, we, we thought that this was so important to include in the book. Uh, why do you think it's important for an organization to have what we call a board policies manual? Well, uh, John, our colleague Bob Andrega said it best, I think. He said, if your organization wants to be more than mediocre, you need a board policies manual. And as we know, boards often adopt policies. Um, that's what boards do. I was with one of those boards uh, last week that did not have a board policy manual, but they, they were in the business of adopting policies. Um, and, and over a period of years, uh, these boards tend to revisit the same topic and perhaps adopt overlapping or even conflictive policies. So, uh, for example, in one, uh, in one case, the board adopted one policy on security one year, and then a few years later adopted another policy with a number of differences without referring to the first policy. And then a few years later, uh, they adopted yet another security policy that included some parts of the earlier policies, ignored other parts, and included some parts that were not in either policy. You know, this board, as the board that I shared with last week, clearly needed a board policies manual to keep policies consistent and, and on track. 
um, one of the questions last week, the board asked me, how do we know whether whether an action that we take, a policy that we set, is important enough to put in the board policies manual? And I, I actually shared from one of the lessons in our upcoming book, more lessons from the nonprofit boardroom, when I referred to the big rocks, pebbles, and sand concept, that that if the, the policy or they're adopting really is a big rocks policy, it it belongs in the board policies manual. So, so John, how would you describe the process that a nonprofit should use to develop its very own board policies manual and then use it? Well, uh, Dan, as you've learned, it's, it, as we both know, it's so, so practical. And in the book, we outline a three-step process. Uh, it's pretty simple. One, commit to the concept uh, we're reminded that Peter Drucker once said, plans are only good intentions unless they immediately degenerate into hard work. So it does take time. But number two, just develop the board policy manual, the BPM. And uh, this involves uh, A, assign a coordinator. B, start with a template. Fill in the template with what you know. Uh, C, revise and refine the document with your review team. Uh, D, conduct a legal review, of course, of the final draft of the BPM. And then E, present the BPM draft to the full board. And, of course, it's designed that it can be changed at any meeting. That's the whole concept of a effective BPM. Thirdly, integrate the board policy manual to guide committee work and to guide all board discussions. Dan, uh, I'm reminded of uh, some of the governance gurus saying that uh, really uh, at the end of a long, long discussion, you should always ask, is the reason this discussion agenda item went so long is because we have the wrong policy or we need to revise the policy? So what would you recommend that um, boards do to get started on their BPM? What resources are there? Well, uh, hands down, John, I think the best resource is Frederick Laughlin and Bob Andrika's book, Good Governance for Nonprofits, subtitled Developing Principles and Policies for an Effective Board. Well, that's great, Dan. Getting the board policy manual in place, I know that it takes a lot of work, but in the long run, it does keep the boards focused and consistent. Um, a similar topic and our second key point here is the danger that we see of the board tending to drift into operational matters that really are best left to staff. So Dan, I know that you've served on a number of nonprofit boards across your career. Why do you see that boards have this tendency to dive into what we call the operational weeds? In some cases, uh, the board may be meeting too frequently. Um, When there are not enough substantive agenda items to justify a board meeting, it is simply tempting to fill in the time with operational matters. Of course, even with a board that only meets twice a year, there can be a board member or two that wants to go operational. So, John, when board members detour into operations, how would you describe what happens at that point? Well, three things, really three huge problems. Uh, occur. One is uh, decision-making boundaries are crossed. A board crosses a red line when addressing topics that should be handled only by the CEO. Uh, Secondly, time is squandered. Meddling in operations wastes the collective time of the board. 
Uh, you might take the hourly rate of each of your board members, multiply the combined hourly rate by the time wasted in board meetings discussing operational issues, and as you know, the resulting number can just be astounding. Um, thirdly, frustration results. Uh, going into the operational weeds will frustrate many board members, and it's almost guaranteed to frustrate the CEO. So, Dan, those are the problems, but what are some solutions for the operational meddling disease? Well, two solutions come to mind. Um, number one, empower the board chair to address operational overreach. And this can happen in a couple ways. Um, setting the agenda, if the agenda avoids operational areas, the proper tone will be set for board discussions and hopefully the board chair and the CEO have set that agenda together uh, so that they can jointly uh, determine how to keep the agenda out of the weeds and then monitoring board discussions. The board chair must monitor the urge of board members to delve into operational matters and gently guide the discussion back to policy matters. And then number two, inspire board members to speak up when the board veers into operational matters. While the board chair should be the first line of defense, any board member can alert the chair to the possibility that the board has crossed into operations. I'll just share uh, a time that I, I recently was blessed. I was sitting next to, the, to our chair and we have a great uh, chair. Um, during the discussion in the meeting, one of the um, board members decided to uh, to go off into the weeds, uh, shall we say, and and usually the board chair would have picked up on that, but in this case he did not, um, and I'll give him a pass on that. But but another board member to my left immediately sensed that the board was about to go into the weeds, and he held up his hand and got the attention of the board chair and said, "Mr. Chair." Um, I sense that this is a matter that should be left uh, to to staff, and and so you talk about blessing the heart uh, of a, of a president. That that is one time when that happens. So, John, how can a board assess whether it is running afoul of operational meddling? Well, there are several ways, but uh, let me just say uh, I think your transparency is a blessing to every listener on this podcast because. Even though everybody, you know, kind of intuitively knows the rules, it does happen. And so um, board members uh, can can really provide great assistance. So uh, thanks for sharing that. You know, uh, many times if you go back uh, and review discussions and actions at prior board meetings, you might just with a red pen say, circle that, circle that. You know, that was the agenda problem we 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 invited people into the operational weeds. Um, that's kind of a quick test to determine if the board is going there. Uh, if it is, then analyze what's causing the problem. Is it the agenda or are certain board members the guilty parties? Or, or rather than painting a broad brush on everybody, many times I find it's just one person. If so, uh, don't whine to the whole board. Just have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with that person and, and raise their view of what board meetings should uh, and could be. Thanks, John. Those are really some great questions. You know, what's causing the problems? Um, I think of are the agendas properly designed? 
are certain board members the guilty parties? Those are really helpful in order to avoid operational meddling. Well, gentlemen, our last topic today is a great one to end with, and that is hearing from the Holy Spirit. Uh, So, John, if you don't mind, help us walk through the importance of that and where we can take that into our board meetings. So important. You know, we we pray that all board members of Christ-centered nonprofits uh, long and desire to hear from the Holy Spirit, especially in the boardroom. Um, And it's a rare board, of course, that doesn't open and close its meeting with prayer. But here's my question that Dan and I would ask in the book and to all of you listening. How long has it been since your board was prompted to stop and pray in the middle of the meeting? And has this happened more than once? Uh, How long has it been since your board was literally interrupted by the spontaneous singing of the doxology? Uh, I remember vividly when that happened in a board meeting that I was uh, observing. It, it, was, uh, it was a memorable moment. And um, what would happen if we had those powerful experiences far more often, perhaps, than what we do now? We're not suggesting, of course, that boards routinely pray for every single board agenda item. Uh, that would reduce prayer to a perfunctory level. But it's our sense that boards often miss prime opportunities to be empowered by our Heavenly Father. It's, it's this simple. God's power is revealed in the boardroom when board members pray together and discern together. Dan, uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on how a board can avoid missing the nudge of the Holy Spirit. Well, John, you and I have been so blessed uh, to have Dr. Stephen Machia as our friend and colleague. And I still remember uh, how I was touched when Steve shared from a platform in Colorado Springs about the nudge of the Holy Spirit as he contrasted it or compared it to the tap, tap, tap of the Spirit on our hearts. You know, we can easily miss that nudge from the Holy Spirit unless we first realize that we need God's help. Board members, as board members, we must enter the boardroom with a receptivity to hearing from the Holy Spirit. Tap, tap, tap. Secondly, we need to develop the discipline of stillness. Too often, boards do not seize opportunities to be still. Scripture is replete with examples of those who took time to hear what God had to say to them. Tap, tap, tap. Thirdly, we need to commit to slow down, to lower the RPMs. We, you know, we often run our board meetings on such a tight schedule that it seems that there is no time to stop and pray. Tap, tap, tap. And finally, we need to understand that any board member can feel the nudge of the Holy Spirit. It is not just the board chair who can sense the leading of the Holy Spirit. Any board member should feel free to raise the flag when they sense it's time to stop and pray. Tap, tap, tap. Well, John, St. Ignatius gave us some help in considering the Holy Spirit in our decision-making. Share with us about that. Dan, uh, (laughs) that was powerful. I uh, I think that there's a national movement that could be born with just those three words, tap, 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 and it would just be this 
this reminder to all of us, uh, are we are we really slowing it down to hear from God? Um, St. Ignatius identified three distinct times uh, when we're faced with making these spirit-filled choices. Um, it's worth uh, diving deeper into, uh, first, a revelatory time when when beyond a shadow of a doubt, the conviction to make a decision is crystal clear. Uh, that's that's fantastic. Number two is a discerning time. Interior movements of consolation or desolation uh, pulling us towards or pushing us away from a decision. And then thirdly, uh, there's a waiting time, which I think is the most difficult, like a sailboat without any wind. There's no strong consolation or desolation. Um, a revelatory time may not require a prayer during a board meeting, but when a board is in a discerning or a waiting time, prayer is often just what is needed. Wow, this has been so encouraging. I know even just for me. Dan, what concluding thoughts do you have on helping boards hear from the Holy Spirit? Well, I would suggest uh, that boards read Ruth Haley Barton's book, Pursuing God's Will Together. It is truly an outstanding book. Perhaps ask one or more board members to read and report on the book. Uh, reflect on recent board meetings. Were there times when the board should have stopped to pray and did not? And then finally, let me share more words from Dr. Stephen Machia. He says, most boards are led by well-meaning, gracious-hearted, thought-provoking leaders, but without a continued dependence upon God. We ultimately shift toward human wisdom, and without meaning any harm, we end up missing the tap, tap, tap of God's Spirit. And Steve says it's the tap that's most important, because that's God at work, and we don't want to miss his presence, his power, his direction, and his peace. Dan, that's awesome. That is such a great reminder. And that too, actually, unfortunately, wraps up our discussion on three key takeaways from Lessons from the Nonprofit Boardroom. I know this has been very valuable to our listeners, so thank you on behalf of all of us. Um, you can dig a little deeper here on Lessons from the Nonprofit Boardroom through the page on ecfa.org slash Lessons Nonprofit Boardroom. There you can also find blog posts and links to order the book. Well, again, our thanks to Dan Busby and John Pearson and to each of you for tuning in. If you like what you hear, we would love it if you could rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, God bless you. And we look forward to being with you again on the Excellence in Ministry podcast.